0: As a writer, I feel powerless to single-handedly end structural racism. But like Toni Morrison, Mai Ayim, Buchi Emecheta, and Bernadine Evaristo, I can bear witness and write about the myriad ways in which racism affects us all. I can use my literature in the service of Black lives so that we can have some kind of tomorrow.
1: The Goethe Annual Lecture at the Goethe Institute London is a new lecture series on the intersection of culture and politics, dedicated to vital contemporary voices. At the end of 2020, we were privileged to enjoy the insights of author and political activist Sharon Dodua O'Toole. Speaking to us from her home in Berlin, Sharon examined the revolutionary potential of black feminist authors, whose work challenges dominant assumptions on gender, sexuality, and race. Yet their perspectives have been marginalized and oppressed in the UK, Germany, and around the world. Her lecture is a must here for anyone interested in better understanding, honoring, and supporting the brilliant Black feminist authors whose works have changed and continue to change the world. You're listening to Talking Culture, a futures podcast. Talking Culture is a platform for thought-provoking discussions about the future of Europe, the UK, and the world. I'm Franca Forth. Settle in, grab a cup of tea or coffee, and enjoy sharing the duo 2s lecture, entitled Some Kind of Tomorrow, Honouring the Visions of Black Feminist Creative Authors.
0: Dear listener, before I begin with my talk, I would like to invite you to participate in the Little Thought Experiment and it may sound strange, but please bear with me. I would like you to consider the size of your outer ears. Maybe you would like to feel them, or perhaps it's enough to just look at your reflection in a mirror or selfie. Ears typically come in a range of shapes, colors, and dimensions. For the purposes of this thought experiment, I would like you to focus only on their size. Are they small, medium, or large? And do you think your self-assessment would match with how other people would rate them? Close family members? Work colleagues? Fellow students? Complete strangers? And now imagine how unjust it would be if your life chances were limited by the apparent size of your ears. I deliberately say apparent because in this scenario, people are not actually walking around with rulers or measuring tape. They are making snap judgments in passing or only after the briefest or first impressions. Judgments and impressions which quickly become irrevocable. Imagine if a new scientific theory emerged which linked ear size to intellectual progress or leadership skills or exceptional beauty. Imagine if popular culture was dominated by images of people with big ears. Imagine you grew up with the belief that the bigger your ears were, the more sexually attractive you would be. And what if you had small ears, but you were convinced that you too could be a chancellor or prime minister? You too could deliver an Academy Award winning performance. You too could be the CEO of a DAX company. Imagine if you took to growing your hair or covering your head in a specific way so that you could get away with acting as if your ears were larger than they really are. But even as you moved in the circles of those with big ears, you still lived with the trauma of past humiliation, the shame of hiding and the anxiety of being found out. Imagine that all of this had arisen as a direct consequence of a single dubious scientific theory, which originated hundreds of years ago and had long since been disproved, but was still widely believed to this day. Thankfully, we know better. The size of our ears is rarely of any great significance, unless they are extraordinarily large or the outer part does not exist at all. Similarly, the tone of one's skin is not an adequate indicator of ability, talent or potential. Neither is it a measure of the likelihood to either commit a crime or be awarded a Nobel Prize. Of course it isn't. And yet here we are. Aside from a worldwide pandemic, 2020 has also given us, for a brief moment in time, a worldwide spotlight on the reality of racism in predominantly white countries. The reason I began my talk with this thought experiment is because for the next 30 minutes or so, I will be focusing on black writers, more specifically, black feminist creative writers. And it is therefore vital that I clarify from the outset what I'm talking about when I use the word black in this context. For even with all the protesting and the Twitter hashtags and the black squares on Instagram, there is still a widespread assumption that the political identity black refers to a physical trait, an apparent shade of the skin. I deliberately say apparent because typically people are not walking around with colour charts in order to objectively measure skin tone. They are making snap judgments in passing, or only after the briefest of first impressions. Judgments and impressions which quickly become irrevocable. However, a black person can be as dark-skinned as Alec Vec or Lupita Nyong'o, or as light-skinned as Meghan Markle or Jesse Williams. When I refer to a person as black, I am not referring to their skin tone. Indeed, I am as unlikely to base my own political identity on my skin tone as I am on my eye colour, nose width or ear size. Any discrimination I experience does not occur because of my physical characteristics. Discrimination occurs due to an accumulation of assumptions about what those characteristics allegedly say about me. A banal example. On my way home from a job interview, so I was well-dressed. I was approached by a white woman. I did not understand straight away what she was asking of me, as she wasn't using whole sentences, but mostly only using pronouns, infinitives, and exclamation marks. It was clear she volunteered for a local food bank known as the Berliner Tafel, and I assumed she was collecting donations for it. It took some time for me to realize that she was actually trying to explain to me how I could access the free groceries there myself. She had assumed I would not be able to speak fluent German and that I was quite obviously in need, based only on her very limited knowledge of people who look like me. My resistance to discrimination is therefore not based on trying to change any of my own physical characteristics. Instead, my focus is on using literature to change or eliminate the assumptions. So what do I mean when I use the word black to describe people? I identify as Black and I write this with a capital B. In this way, I am signifying that I am engaging with the assumptions. I am educating myself about them. I am identifying with other members of the African diaspora who have resisted against racist oppression, who have developed strategies for survival, and who, under the most adverse circumstances, have succeeded in passing on our myriad cultures, languages, and histories down through generations. I identify as black, and I also identify as a feminist. In doing so, I draw on the definition of bell hooks, an African-American professor, activist, and author who wrote an essay published in 1984, which seeks to answer the question, what is feminism? At the time of writing, bell hooks was frustrated with the lack of clarity concerning its definition. In response to her contemporaries who proclaimed the need to, quote, make women the social equals of men, bell hooks asked, which men do women want to be equal to? In capitalist, predominantly white societies, it is clear that some men are more privileged than others. Why would any woman seek to participate in systems which perpetuate this? And I would add that a feminism, which solely focuses on, quote, making women the social equals of men, is inadequate also from a queer perspective. Where does this focus on women on the one side and men on the other side leave gender nonconforming people? The essay that Bell Hooks wrote is called Feminism, a Movement to End Sexist Oppression. Her definition is in the title. Feminism, she claims, and I agree with her, Must target sexist oppression, but needs to consider how this links with race and class based oppression also. And if we think about what that might mean, then we quickly realize that sexist oppression negatively impacts everybody women, trans men, non binary people, and actually even cis men. Cis men here means men who were assigned male at birth and still comfortably live with that gender designation. Patriarchy affects them too. In different ways, of course. This isn't going to be a talk about those poor men. But we can see that the stereotypes of having to be strong, being discouraged from showing vulnerability, statements like boys don't cry, all of these are forms of toxic masculinity, which is certainly damaging to men also. Therefore, a focus on combating sexist oppression is a good baseline for thinking about how we can make a society more just for all its members. The African American theorist, writer, and activist Audre Lorde once famously spoke about the need to look at many different forms of oppression at the same time. She said, and I quote, there is no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. Black women experience sexism. However, due to racism, black women typically earn less than white women and so are also more likely to experience class discrimination. Black women usually also perform most of the caring responsibilities either unpaid within the home or poorly paid outside of the home, or both. Indeed, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, an African-American legal expert and activist, coined the term intersectionality to provide a theoretical framework to analyse Black female experiences of oppression. Simply put, if you imagine racism as a road that runs in one direction, and sexism as a road that runs directly across it. Black women stand at the intersection of both. This means, for example, workplace policies designed to improve race equality typically end up benefiting black men most, and political policies designed to reduce sexism typically end up benefiting white women most. Black feminist theory production allows us to focus on these intersections. But why should we do this? My answer is because we cannot afford not to. On the other side of the Atlantic, we are witnessing the catastrophic consequences of a government that ignored the grave social inequalities in the United States, indeed exacerbated them over the last four years. Across Europe, right-leaning populism continues to rise and at the borders of Europe, hundreds of people drown while seeking refuge here. Meanwhile, the climate crisis hovers like the sword of Damocles over us all. And I've not even mentioned COVID-19. We desperately need a system change. And it's my firm belief that if the focus is placed on ensuring the situation is improved for those who are suffering the most, ultimately society will become more humane for us all. So by way of example, in a heteronormative society, queer people will be suffering the most. In a racist society, it will be black people and people of colour. And in a sexist society, it will be women and non-binary people. The Black Lives Matter movement in the US was founded by three black queer women in 2013. Black women have been the backbone of many anti-racist movements and race equality initiatives in the UK. For example, Claudia Jones, who founded the Notting Hill Carnival in 1966. And the most recent wave of the Black German movement grew largely through the tireless work of Black lesbians and Black women in the mid-1980s. In Black communities, creative writing plays a major role in the pursuit of social change and social justice. Dominant perspectives in academia, on history and in media representation have tended to downplay the achievements and contributions of people in the African diaspora. European histories of Africa typically begin with colonisation. School children do not learn much more about Africa than the fact that enslaved people were violently removed from their homes, kidnapped, transported overseas, forced to labour on plantations under horrendous conditions. It is known that many historical sources which attest to life in pre-colonial Africa have been lost or destroyed, while hundreds of thousands of cultural artefacts, the exact number, will never be known have been removed from their countries of origin and taken to Europe. In this context, cultural production and creative writing provide a crucial means with which Black communities can attempt to reclaim their stories. It is, as the great Nigerian author, novelist and poet Chinua Achebe wrote in his first novel, Things Fall Apart, until the lions have their own historians, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. The title of my talk is taken from Beloved, a novel by the Nobel Prize-winning African-American writer, Toni Morrison. It's a devastating novel, beautiful and haunting. The story of Sethe, a mother who murders her own little daughter to save her from a life of enslavement, was published in 1987. It forced US-American readers to reckon with a trauma that is not accounted for in history books. In one of the final scenes of the book, Paul D., also a formerly enslaved person, speaks lovingly to Sethi. Sethi, he says, me and you, we got more yesterday than anybody. We need some kind of tomorrow. He leans over and takes her hand. With the other, he touches her face. You, your best thing, Sethi. You are. His holding fingers are holding hers. And Sethi responds, me, Me, for a person who had legally belonged to someone else for most of her life, who had been abused and brutalized, for this person to not only be told that she belonged to herself now, but that she was her own best thing, is one of the most powerful moments in the novel. The concept of black people having a future is also completely radical and it goes to the heart of black imagination. Toni Morrison dared to write stories which did not centre white people and the white experience. Many criticised her for this and asked when she was going to write about the truly important matters, like white people. Her response was always the same, that this was not her focus. She wanted to write for black people in the same way that Leo Tolstoy wrote for Russians, or in the same way that the fictional universe of James Joyce centred around Dublin. As a relatively new writer, I've taken the lot of encouragement from Toni Morrison's stance. I know that some have considered it to be provocative. And even from the perspective of a black writer, it could seem counterintuitive. Why should I limit myself to black readers only? Wouldn't I want as many people as possible to be reading my work? Surely, the bigger the audience, the better. Moreover, her statement obviously cannot be reversed. If a white author were to openly announce that they were only writing for white people, that would be problematic, to say the least. However, I understand that Toni Morrison was actually saying that the cultural production in the United States during her lifetime had been dominated by the white imagination. White male writers filled the essential reading lists. They were the ones who were winning most of the literature prizes. They were the ones who were being reviewed They were being taught in English literature classes at school and in university. And because of this, there is a lack of knowledge of Black history and Black culture, also among Black people. Toni Morrison wanted to fill that gap. She aimed to write for those people who, thus far, had not been seen as a target audience. Many works of fiction that were being published in the US at the time, even by Black people, were targeted at a white audience. Toni Morrison mentions the book Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison as one such book. Invisible to whom, she asks. Ellison had written as a black person, but his novel was still explaining something to a white reader, and this frustrated her. Toni Morrison herself was influenced by Chinua Achebe, the Nigerian writer I quoted earlier, who specifically focuses the African experience in his fictional writing. Before Things Fall Apart... The best-known novels that had been published about Africa had been written from a white perspective, focusing on the savagery of this dark continent. Achebe succeeded in presenting the melodies of his Igbo language in a way that was accessible for a global Anglophone audience, allowing many of us in the diaspora to enter an unfamiliar world, pre-colonial West Africa, and feel right at home there. I also want to focus black people with my creative writing, which is not to say that non-black people cannot read my literature, but it is to say that when non-black people read my work, they are being offered a chance to access an exchange that I am having with black people. And I think that this is a valuable way to share rare knowledge and new perspectives. At this point, I would like to refresh your memory about the thought experiment at the beginning of the talk. Black literature is not simply literature written by people who have darker skin. Black literature does not stand in opposition to white literature. It would be greatly diminishing to read Beloved as an anti-white text. Toni Morrison's tremendous achievement is to imagine black people as an essential part of US American humanity. In Beloved, she succeeds in articulating and transforming collective pain and handing it back to Africans in diaspora as art. Another writer I am heavily influenced by is the black German activist, academic and poet, Mai Ayim. In the early 1980s, the aforementioned Audrey Lorde visited Berlin and engaged in a conversation with Mai Ayim and other black German women. They spoke about their specific experiences of being black in predominantly white countries. In Germany at the time, it was difficult to find vocabulary to explain and describe the experiences. There was not even a word which they could proudly use to describe their political identity. The words which had been used before had either been borrowed from the animal kingdom or derived from dubious race theorists writing about the inferiority of Africans. At the time, black Germans coined their own identity, Afrodeutsch. It was inspired by the US term Afro-American. In 1984, in the same year that Bell Hooks published the essay I mentioned earlier, the seminal work Farbe Bekennen was published in English translation, Showing Our Colors. This anthology, which is co-edited by Maya Yim, contains academic texts, poetry, and autobiographical stories, and marked a milestone in black German history. There had been black Germans in Germany up until that point. Indeed, black people have existed in Germany for over 300 years. In the dominant German discourse, it is mostly assumed that the first black Germans were children of US American soldiers after World War II. Or some will have heard of the so-called Rhineland children who were fathered by the French army personnel stationed in the Rhineland during the French occupation after World War I, but that would be about it with the publication of Faber Buchanan, there was now a collection of texts which provided evidence of Black German history reaching back into the 18th century. The inaugural meetings of the more recent Black German movement also took place in the mid-1980s, at about the same time as the publication of Faber Buchanan. The initiative Black People in Germany, ISD, and Adifra, a Black Queer Feminist Organization, were both founded at this time. Mayim also used poetry and spoken word, often in a humorous way, to depict aspects of the black German experience. For example, in her poem "Afrodeutsch Eins, she mocks those white Germans who have been making her life hell for so many years. I'll read a little in the German original and then my own translation. Sie sind Afro-Deutsch? Ah, ich verstehe. Afrikanisch und Deutsch. Ist ja eine interessante Mischung. Wollen Sie denn mal zurück? Wie? Sie waren noch nie in der Heimat vom Papa. Ist ja traurig. Also, wenn Sie mich fragen, so eine Herkunft, das prägt eben doch ganz schön. Ich zum Beispiel, ich bin aus Westfalen und ich finde, da gehöre ich auch hin. And in translation, your Afrodeutsch Ah, I see. African and German. What an interesting mixture. So, do you want to go back sometime? What do you mean you've never been to your father's homeland? How sad. Well, if you ask me, your heritage, hm, it really leaves its mark on you. Me, for example, I come from Westphalia and I think that's exactly where I belong. Maya Yim had a particularly wonderful way of performing her poetry. It was always a highlight at meetings of black Germans, providing a means of channeling collective emotions, laughing together, crying together, while at the same time holding up a mirror to the dominant society. If, as I claim, black feminist creative writers have such a key role to play in progressive movements, as well as the pursuit of justice more broadly, why are they not more well-known in their respective societies. I participated in a networking event in the spring of 2015, convened by Philipp Karbuköpsel in Berlin. It was called the Indaba Schwarze Kulturschaffende in Deutschland. Indaba is a South African term, which means important conference or matter. Schwarze Kulturschaffende means of black cultural workers. We met for two days. The first day was closed and the second day was open to the public. And we had discussions about Black cultural production in Germany, what we were doing, what we wished to do, what the obstacles to our work were. It became very clear that there were serious structural issues. The creative writers at the Indaba reported that very few people working in German-language publishing houses were Black. Literature critics, agents... Literaturhäuser, which are institutions charged with the promotion of literature, all of these tended to be exclusively or predominantly white spaces. There was a lack of understanding of black perspectives in the publishing industry, and black people were not considered as a relative target group as readers. Black writers reported that they were often asked to downplay the blackness of their characters by introducing a white best friend or making descriptions of physical attributes more racially ambiguous. Some cover designs made black characters appear white, and some writers reported being asked to consider using pen names so they would not sound so foreign. Since the summer of this year, there's been renewed awareness concerning the pervasiveness of structural racist discrimination. In the UK, The Black Writers Guild was established in June and has pushed for the implementation of policies to achieve adequate representation of Black people in the literature industry. Many of the issues in the UK are the same as those highlighted in the Indaba of 2015. The Black British academic, editor and award-winning author, Bernardine Evaristo, has been involved in the Black Writers Guild and is in any case a long-standing advocate for the inclusion of black writers and writers of color. Two of her projects are the Brunel International African Poetry Prize, which was founded in 2012, and Black Britain Writing Back, a new book series with Hamish Hamilton, which will bring back into print classics of black British literature. Bernardine Evaristo's latest novel, Girl, Woman, Other, focuses on the experiences of a range of different, mostly black women and one non-binary person in Britain. Not only does Bernadine Evarista bring their perspectives to life with her vivid, innovative and eclectic writing style, she also talks candidly in her speeches and interviews about her desire to platform the stories of those who are underrepresented or not represented at all in British literature. I had the pleasure of sitting next to her on a panel when she came to Germany in 2017 and it was a wonderful experience. She challenged me and she challenged the other panel participants not only to think about what we were doing with our creative writing, but also to consider its impact in greater society beyond the relatively insular literary world. She is not only a brilliant writer, but she is also a fearless and outspoken mentor. As I prepared my talk, it occurred to me that I would have to add one more layer to the definition of black feminism. As the last writer I will mention, Buchi Emicheta, did not identify as a feminist in her lifetime. As far as I am aware, neither did Toni Morrison. However, when I think about who has influenced me as a creative writer, I end up thinking about the haltung of my literary idols, I don't find the German word haltung so easy to translate into English. Earlier in my talk, I used the word stance, which is close, but I feel haltung has a broader meaning which encompasses an individual's inner values and how these shape one's thoughts and actions on a range of issues. It's the haltung that I'm referring to when I describe Toni Morrison, Mai Ayim, Bernadine Evaristo and Buchi Emicheta as black feminists. The Nigerian author, academic, and fierce advocate for women's rights, Buchi Emichita, was a prolific writer. Like Toni Morrison, Buchi Emecheta was a single mother in full-time employment who wrote her novels early in the morning before work. Her books are brutally honest and draw heavily on her own life experiences, depicting poverty in London and domestic violence from the perspective of a black woman. When asked in interview how she managed to write with the children, she simply answered I had to write because of them. As a single parent myself, this resonates deeply with me. The sentence honouring the visions of black feminist creative authors in the title of my talk can be understood in two ways, and I am happy to invoke both meanings. I've wanted to honor my literary ancestors and mentors in this talk. Maya Yim. Tony Morrison and Buchi Emecheta would have deserved far more recognition than they received in their lifetimes. And I'm looking forward to the day Bernardine Evarista wins the Booker Prize for a second time and will not share the accolade with anyone else. Or the Nobel Prize in literature. The Nobel is also good. Moreover, I intend to honour their cultural contracts. Each of them has sought to transform the societies within which they lived and worked using creative writing as their tool. Greatly influenced by them, I in turn would like to encourage other black writers through my editorship of the English language book series Witnessed. I also write diverse black female figures in my creative writing. My next publication, Ada's Raum or Ada's Room, will be my debut novel and I've written it in German. The main character, Ada or Ada, lives through four time periods, pre-colonial West Africa in 1459, 19th century England, here she is Ada Lovelace, Nazi Germany in 1945 and then in Berlin 2019. Each time she is confronted with traumatic memories and needs to find a way to deal with them. As a writer, I feel powerless to single-handedly end structural racism, But like Toni Morrison, Mai Ayim, Buchi Emecheta and Bernadine Evaristo, I can bear witness and write about the myriad ways in which racism affects us all. I can use my literature in the service of Black lives so that we can have some kind of tomorrow. Thanks for
1: listening to Talking Culture, a futures podcast, a production of the Goethe Institute London. You've been listening to author and activist Sharon De Duo, too. To learn more about our lecture series, visit goethe.de slash London. Next time on the
0: podcast, there is a kind of peculiar disconnect from chief executives who have families who live on this planet and yet have no qualms whatsoever about extracting oil, about fossil fuels, about toxic chemicals, and yet somehow don't believe it affects them or their children or their communities. And our absence from those decision making, from the policy making, is leading to the catastrophe. I I feel certain of that.
1: In the next episode, Iwona Blaswick, director of the Whitechapel Gallery, shares how her institution and the larger art world can reduce and even eliminate the environmental impact, and how art can contribute to a more sustainable future. The goethe Institute is the cultural institute of Germany. We foster international culture exchange and enable culture involvement in over 100 countries worldwide. At the Goethe-Institut London, we offer German language courses, cultural programs, events, literature, and much more, both on-site and online for audiences throughout the UK and worldwide. You can find out more on our website goethe.de slash London. For this episode, we worked with Better Lemon Creative Audio and executive producer Hannah Hethman, hosting research and narration by myself. Till next time, I'm Franca Forth.